Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Mike Mitchell, and this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive in the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of November 28th, 2022. How's it going, Mike? Good, good. How are you? Doing well. So I got I got one to kick off with. Um and it's it's from one of my favorite uh, sites, the the DeferReport.com. They always do a really good kind of a technical analysis of different attacks from you know start to finish. So really good details as far as what data to look at, what technique techniques are being used. So um, this one is Emotet strikes again. LNK files leads to domain wide. So or domain wide ransomware. Sorry. So this is. Um, it's always fun to see Emotech come back because it always does. Um, they've got really good just infrastructure. I mean, I know we the C2s and things like that get knocked off, but we were having a conversation internal about their spam capabilities and persistence with just having that noise on the internet. It's almost like dealing with worm type capabilities. But something to take note is, uh, you know, our, our shameless plug, if you go to cyborgsecurity.com and you look and register for a hunter um, platform access in the top right, uh, there's a community edition, and we covered Emotet pretty extensively and for a while now. And in that collection, uh, a lot of these techniques I'll kind of walk through are already kind of covered. And as these things come out, we walk through our our uh, detections or uh, things to identify um, these techniques and validate that they are looking for the right things in case something slightly changed in how they implement um, those tactics. So really, this one starts out with the the very common technique now, the LNK file from an e, uh, yeah, phishing email. It basically does kind of a call out to download the Emotet payload. And then through that, there's tons of, you know, like I've mentioned, the spam email. So Emotet's really good about getting in and then dispersing, trying to, you know, use your account and things to hit other targets. But they, they do use two administrative type tools, which I thought was interesting, which is a tactical RMM. And then the domain they use to communicate with that was closely registered as far as the timeline to the incident. So obviously those things were kind of synced up. So when you look at you know domain registration, it's always good to be aware of all that. And they implement uh, AnyDesk was the other tool, which was interesting because they kind of used one to install the other later on. So it didn't make much sense why necessarily, but that's one, one of the things they did, which was interesting. And then they closely use Cobalt Strike and really just for the persistence mechanisms. They use it for persistence, a little bit of lateral, um, which they had some failures in trying to do some of the lateral they were doing. And, and then, you know, the Cobalt Strike uses a lot of the net command type discovery. And then uh, they try to lateral with uh, WMI. Um, one, they either try to do remote service creation and get that started that way, or they'll move payloads to admin shares and then execute them via WMI, um, which we cover Cobalt Strike extensively too. Mm-hmm. Um, but was what I like and what's interesting, they also try to do the zero logon exploit which also failed, but there's a lot of failures in the mix. And and I like to call that out because a lot of times people focus on what does something look like when it's successful? And especially when it comes to like, you know, hey, there's vulnerabilities that are being, you know, hit or or released. And, you know, my favorite thing to really focus on on those 
um, or in exploits in general is what's the after effects you expect and what does it look like when it fails? Because some exploits you need multiple iterations because it might not work the first time. Um, also, depending on what's being exploited, if it's not something external facing where it's gonna you expect that they kind of get pounded on, it's good to know that happened in your environment because that's not a common thing, right? You know, you talk about attackers like to blend in. Well, the failures that exploits sometimes cause that get logged are not common logs to see, and they're usually kind of the rare logs. If you ever did like a long long tail analysis of your logs, they yeah. kind of stand out as like, oh, here's a weird error event. What is this? This doesn't normally happen. And sometimes if you understand that it's tied to certain exploits, um, it's a good indicator to see that behavior occurring. Um, yeah. yeah, to your point on that, you typically see a lot of that activity if you're you're spamming some sort of like external IP looking for vulnerabilities, you're just trying a bunch of exploits. And to your point, internally, things like net logon are things that you really only are gonna find errors if there's something misconfigured or typically those, you're not just gonna have errors pop up out of nowhere unless you've done some sort of change configuration. So logging that and tracking that internally is a really good idea. And it's, and I, I think it's good, you know, people talk about, you know, they'll patch certain things like the zero login, like, oh, cool, you patched it. Sometimes it's still good to have some sort of indication that it's still trying to be leveraged, right? Like you're protected, you know, you don't have to worry, but, you know, that's kind of like your red herring to go after or not red herring, that's the opposite, right? It's, it's the thing you go after, right, um, that, that stands out as, hey, this shouldn't be happening. Yeah, I mean, it's um, just like so, if you're, if you're kind of working on your car and you have an engineer code and you fix it, you're probably going to be looking for that the next couple of weeks to see if it breaks right. again, right? So right. it's the same thing with security. If you're going to patch something, that might be a really good idea to kind of have that trailing alert or detection or log kind of visibility for the next couple of weeks to see if there's any activity against that, that vulnerability. So, so a lot of times people so, patch like, all right, we're good, and they'll walk away. Right? Yeah, and that's a great, you know, when people land, if it's a fresh exploit, that it's something that likely will be tried potentially, right? So um, good to look for. And then the one thing I thought was really interesting, and, I, and honestly, I'm not really familiar of this interrupting ransomware operations, but they launched the don't sleep tool, right? To prevent the computer from sleeping or hibernating. And, you know, typically when a computer's really busy, it usually doesn't do that. Or if it does go to sleep, I, I maybe the encryption took that long and they're worried about it so they started deploying this type of technique i haven't seen that yet i feel like but that's I thought that was a pertinent for desktops uh, and like personal laptops and computers because typically servers don't sleep right right um that's interesting that they added that in i mean it's it's good indication that they've ran into that problem before right and so that's right. another way to to look for you know potential hunting artifact that you could look at if that's turned on right yeah so you know and, and you might think you know later on maybe some of the techniques won't be a tool they may go and try and change the configuration right right so the computer doesn't sleep so that's like a really good technique to identify if that's actually being leveraged and you know when, when i try to think about how to hunt for things a lot of times i think about not just that one instance but how can this be leveraged a multitude of ways um so you know, how's that covered down? So I feel like I'm plugging those holes and not just, you know, addressing one avenue, you know, for mm -hmm. instance. So. Yeah, I think so, yeah. anytime we talk about emits, that's a really good example of why it's important that we're hunting for behaviors, techniques and tactics rather than indicators. I know there, I mean, there's plenty of sites tracking the C2 uh, IOCs. And so there was millions and millions of IP addresses and domains 
that have changed over the past seven years, but the thing that hasn't really changed are the behaviors and techniques that they use, where they might add additional techniques in, but they're they're clearly still leveraging their same workflow uh, when they're using Emotet and the different tools that they're using to leverage uh, privilege escalation and, and discovery. So again, with, with kind of what we do with Hunter and the concept of the hunt packages and just hunting as methodology, it's easier to track these type of things over time if you're tracking those behaviors and techniques and tactics rather than just the indicators of compromise or yeah. the heuristic level kind of indicators. Um, so Yeah, we don't update those that much, right? When we look at our collections and when we look for things, which is nice. And then, you know, something that I think people should be aware of, you know, as ransomware is becoming more popular, starting to see more of the, like, merging between the botnets and the ransomware deployments, right? Like Quackbot leading to ransomware, Emotet reading to ransomware. Like, it seems like now there's, like, a lot of shared infrastructure um, mm -hmm. to perform these type of attacks, which isn't uncommon or, or not surprising, but when you start... It, you might want to be a little more proactive understanding some of those botnet techniques and behaviors because you might not have the same dwell time you'd expect for different types of attacks. We know ransomware happens pretty quickly, and I want to say this was an eight day. Yeah. So within eight days, they had the whole domain. You know, something that you know you want to make sure if you see remnants of a botnet or something like that uh, to maybe be a little more active um, right. in handling it. So. But I mean, that's that's decent enough dwell time to be able to hunt proactively hunt for this, especially yeah, if you're absolutely. hunting at least every week um, and you're able to catch this before they actually execute the ransomware process, they're they're leaving a lot of things behind that you can track and hunt mm -hmm. for um, through that process. So it wasn't one day to get access and then ransom right. at least one computer, right? They're really trying to figure out the landscape and try to understand as much as they can before they actually execute. So different reports amazing um reading through this yeah. I mean, the amount of detail you get is 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 awesome so you want to move on to the next one yeah yeah why don't you take away all right so bleeping computer one that we typically track on this podcast um this article is about vice society ransomware going after state colleges community colleges and we're starting to see in the landscape that a lot of these public organizations like hospitals and colleges are now starting to get attacked. And so this one's going in that, I guess they leaked some stolen data um, as kind of proof of, of attack. Um, I'm sure they're probably gonna set up a way to try to get money out of these organizations, but this did shut down a lot of the school's capabilities. Voicemail, printing, VPN access, shared drives, all unavailable. And so that can really hurt a school um, it can hurt their kind of attendance rate, um, administration, and then also as they try to recruit for next year. So there's, there's been a couple of cases of colleges actually completely closing due to ransomware. Uh, so this is interesting, and, and it seems like Vice Society is going after a lot of colleges, but they're using known ransomware and malware families. Uh, I think they mentioned Black Hat, Quantum Locker, Zeppelin, Red Alert as well as Hello Kitty, right? So right. Uh, there's a couple of things here that I think contribute to this, probably budget, resources, right? Um, these these schools typically don't have a full security operations center. It's a couple of IT guys that are also doing security. So it's tough when this happens. I'd be curious to see if this school is going to put a lot of budget towards the cybersecurity side of the house, right? There's a lot of PI, kids data, you know, things that we get, 
could potentially be manipulated on these networks, grades, whatever, right? So what are your thoughts on kind of looking at this article? So yeah, I mean, first, I, you know, I think I remember hearing about the Vice Society in the past. It never really stuck with me because um, it didn't sound like anything that would be one around as long as it has been, and two, you know, nothing spectacular about the the tool set or capabilities. But they seem to be um, pretty persistent as far as their targeting of you know educational institutions. Um, mm -hmm. That to me, you know, it's kind of a weird target set because you know, for ransomware, you know, um, but I think you make a good point. Like, you know, some of the opportunity there because there are some budget constraints and staffing constraints, right, um, might make if you don't have all the techniques or the tooling to be more effective um, right. for one. And then the other thing, you know, I haven't seen it as far as what institutions they've hit, but something that, you know, maybe some future revenue interest for, you know, if they're continually to target educational institutions is there's a lot of uh, institutions do research, right? Um, and so if they're able to not only, you know, hold them at bay as far as encrypting some of that stuff, but also stealing some of that stuff too, you know, there might be, that might be one of the ways they kind of monetize their operation. But obviously, you know, Vice Society, you know, their whole, they're called that, but they're also themed like the whole GTA theme. So, yeah. you know, that always seems to me as, you know, what kind of actor, you know, I always think in my head like actor class or capabilities. And I didn't really see much as far as what skill and maturity there is of this, this group specifically. Not saying they're not capable, but, you know, that's kind of how I like to think about if I'm going to hunt for something is but what am I kind of up against and what are some of the techniques I would expect to see that might be unique or expect to go look at it and say like GitHub repos because it's just, you know, copy and paste tooling kind of thing. But, you know, historically, um, institutions were always a great target before ransomware was a thing because they usually had some of the best bandwidth and reliability because, you know, you think of these institutions are kind of like an ISP to the students. So if you wanted a great pivot point, to launch your attacks through institutions were always great for this because you didn't have to have they even go after the institution's internal assets. You can go after students that may have, you know, not a great security awareness, you know, aptitude. So it's interesting to see that kind of switch now because, you know, that's not, it's clearly not what they're doing here, but yeah, so. Yeah, I'd be curious when this actually gets, I mean, they could have proliferated, I'm sure their, their access to those students computers right um it'd be really interesting to not only ransom the college but the whole campus <laughs> right yeah. um and these but again it's about the end goal i'm sure that these students don't have the thousands of dollars in bitcoin that they can actually you know submit to get their money back or if they're really stressed that they just lost their in term paper that they'll pay the money right so or like could you hold the could you hold the school accountable if your stuff got encrypted because of something that happened on their end? You know, like that's, you know, not something that we necessarily fair, but that might be a conversation. Oh, I mean, 100%. I mean, you'd have to assume unless they have you sign off acceptable risk policy and they're not. Right. I'm sure they do. Yeah. It happens on the internet. Right. So uh, they probably protect themselves a little bit, but it's, it's interesting to see if this, this college can recover. It's it's happening all over right now. It's a it's a problem. I don't know how we can fix it as a you know collective, but I think it's just awareness and you know having the ability and resources available to stop these type of things. Um, I think is the most important part. So yeah, I'm uh, hoping yeah. that if we were able to raise the bar, this group would be less effective. Right. Right. But yeah, absolutely. But again, they're using known off the shelf 
malware families. It's not zero days. I mean, it's it's stuff yeah. that could potentially be detected one, but also if you have a hunt function, you could potentially hunt against it. But I think it's just about the resources and the tooling available for a lot of these places to be able to respond or react to this. So, all right, yeah, we can move on. All right, yeah, so um, another one I pulled up and it was just kind of interesting um, in general because I think this comes up, but it's uh, from a cyber news article um, and it's the op zeros modus operandi for opportunity hunter front for the Kremlin or both. And so the, the background really of this is Op Zero is a, is a Russian company and they only work with Russia or, you know, other Russian based organizations. And this is, you know, standard, you know, there's security firms within the United States, other places that only stay in country as far as how they service and work. Um, so they they're just happen to be Russian based. But what's interesting um, and why people are kind of calling it a front for the Kremlin is it's a it's a new company. And the amount of money, because they're not just trying to find vulnerabilities and exploits themselves and then trying to sell them. They're also kind of acting as the middleman and brokering between, hey, I've got an interested party that wants to buy something and I'm going to help them find it. And you know, that way they're kind of disconnected where you don't know who's buying what. And in this case, it was they offered up one and a half million dollars for a, a signal, which is the you know, encrypted communication app on on phones, Android and iPhone, looking for a remote code execution exploit. And then in this case, specifically targeting Android phones. And they said that, you know, for a startup, that's kind of a lot of money to be throwing up there for these vulnerabilities um, or these types of exploits. So they're assuming there's a high stakes backer there. And then there are some, you know, they're trying to say, well, you know, the Ukrainians have been using Signal. Um, they primarily are an Android platform for their communications, you know, especially with, you know, the geopolitical war stuff going on. So that was kind of why they were trying to attribute that as well. But also, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that use Signal, too, that may be interesting to some adversaries, right? I mean, the U.S. government officials sometimes use it. Cybersecurity professionals use Signal, right? So um, yep. it'd, be, it'd be a really good thing. And why the remote code execution is so important is a lot of times you want to attack these types of encrypted communication. The best place to be sitting is just on the end device um, because then you don't worry about trying to actually break encryption. And when it lands, as long as you have the right access, you can basically read messages local. Um, and so that, that makes sense just, you know, as far as that's how you want to get that information. It's not to like, you know, well, I mean, I'm sure you can do more, but if you're really targeting signal, that's that's probably why. So it's just kind of interesting to know that there's, you know, an example of these types of operations where there's, you know, exploit exchange, so to speak. It's interesting to you know, try to understand the motives and what might be the drivers and then the amount of money that can be, you know, made or presented um, this way to kind of show, you know, people do care about exploits. Um, and the more they care, the more likely they're probably going to use them because they only last for so long. There's, there's a shelf life to exploits because they get discovered and patched and that's, you know, then all that money they spent kind of goes to waste. So yeah, what are your yeah, thoughts? I mean, the price tag is ridiculous for yeah. a single exploit unless, unless there's a, I mean, again, it, it's just brokerage, right? Unless you're going to resell that on the market and you're just the, the kind of the end broker that's passing those out. And then if you buy it for 1.5, you sell access to that for half a million to 10 different people, you're gonna make your money back, right? So yeah. the the timeline and the connected parties is a little suspect, right? And right. kind of how you broke it down. But I think it, it's interesting that this whole market exists for researchers, researchers trying to understand those vulnerabilities and exploits 
help patch, build POCs. Um, there's a whole world there that I, I don't think a lot of analysts or people on the security community see, right? Because, I mean, it's a highly valuable piece of property. But to your point, highly valuable for a very specific amount of time. So right. a lot of the times this has to be backdoor under the covers because, again, if Signal, if Signal bought it, which, I mean, they would probably want to, they might want to pay the money to get access to that exploit so they can patch it. But a lot of times, you know, they're probably not in the same conversations that these companies are are having with the the buyers to be able to sell this kind of in the black market. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I it's 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 a very interesting read. Um, I, I I don't know how. I mean, it's it's probably already out there being exploited, right? Um, but it's it's interesting to see that these things are popping up and these organizations are popping up and i'm sure there's a bunch in the united states that do the same thing but um well you know i think a, a good thing to highlight here is there's obviously a vulnerable code kind of everywhere just for the nature right. that people program it and there's you know things can happen but people that look for exploits typically aren't just looking for exploits anywhere like there's a motive behind their research and their time spent. So, you know, if you're seeing vulnerabilities pop up, um, there's usually two reasons. One, someone's really interested in that product for a reason because what they actually want to use it for makes sense based on their target selection. Or two, enough vulnerabilities just came out. So now every researcher is looking at that product like, well, gosh, I wonder what else is broken where you start seeing that surge. Yeah, I um, think... Uh... We didn't have that in the article this week, but I believe I saw that I think F5 released a bunch more vulnerabilities last week, probably due to their big vulnerability a couple of weeks ago, to your point that, you know, eyes on. So they're going to find a lot right. of other things that are available. Right. All right. Well, so moving on, Twitter's in the news again, but <laughs> it's for a different reason. It uh, looks like they had a known vulnerability against their API which is heavily exposed for a lot of different organizations, news organizations pulled from Twitter. It's, it's a little scary how much news is actually just pulled from, from tweets, but uh, they have to expose their API to get people to be able to automate some of the, the pulling of that data. Um, they kind of call it a fire hose um, where you just get streams and streams of tweets, but uh, there's a vulnerability in the API that exposed phone numbers and email addresses for, for individual users. So, that can be problematic, especially because of the the content and the ability for people to potentially, you know, find more information about those users, potentially dox them. Um, so Twitter, I guess, has recently patched the issue. But in in this article, I don't know if they're already selling that data, kind of in the the you know the dark web, where you'll get like dumps of data out from these vulnerabilities or exploits. Uh, but this is just an interesting conversation about kind of public facing services and the the need to kind of protect and monitor those across a variety of different organizations. I mean, most SaaS products have an API that's exposed, right? So yeah, yeah as far as the API, you know, t- touching on that, like, you know, it's good to know what information can be exposed via the API, right? Especially right. if you, you, know, you open that up or you expose it because sometimes like, yeah, it's only accessible internally in some instances for whatever application you're running and that's cool. But, you know, there might be certain things you want to lock down um, or prevent, mm-hmm. um, and you, you can do that in a number of different ways. But um, the other thing is, you know, the information that's being disclosed, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I kind of sit on two different sides of the fence here. Like, one, I feel like phone numbers and emails are kind of accessible 
if people go dig for them. Sure. But it takes a lot of effort, and you, you're not going to pull out 4.4 million records or 5.4 million records, you know, in like an instance, right? Like you, you could from the API. But that also kind of shows like the, these are going to be potentially leveraged for kind of future type of social engineering type of attacks. Yep. And so really, it's kind of exposing people like how connected are people to their technology, really? And how do they interact and how smart are they with their technology? Because that's really the real risk here, right? So if you're overly connected, use it for everything, um, maybe there's a greater risk for you, but then, then you know, that becomes like an awareness training problem because how do you do public cybersecurity awareness training? Like that doesn't really exist. So you kind of rely on if someone works in an organization and they have an awareness training, do they touch on personal cyber security awareness, you know, protection um, stuff, which I think is, is worth it because if your people are at risk, then there inherently can be a risk to, you know, the company that's employing them as well. And it's not necessarily their fault. You know, this is some outside social media, third party unrelated to you, but if they become exposed in some way and they come, you know, and they're kind of like a proxy to now you and, you know, that's something to consider. Right. So it'd be interesting if Twitter should provide a link to cybersecurity awareness training or something through. That would be a great breach. Like what is your responsibility as an organization if, you know, PI is released? Not only is it, you know, sometimes you pay for protections if there are certain things that are provided, right? Like credit cards and stuff just closed. But maybe it would be really cool if they're like, hey, you guys got to at least offer this training that people can go through for protecting. I mean, it's like at a cost, so there's kind of a penalty there. And it does give people, if they're really concerned, what should they be concerned about? You know? Yeah, like a policy. understand that. You get redirected to cybersecurity awareness training. <laughs> yeah. You can't plug in until you're done, right? I mean, that, that could be a... You should have pissed off uh, a lot of people, right? But yeah, I'm 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 just picturing like you know what happens when you fail fishing training at work or something, right? And you get stuck <laughs> in the training, like no, not this again. You yeah, know? That, that training loop. Um, but you make a good point, right? So the the features of this is interesting. So if you have the email addresses and the phone numbers, and you also can tie it to a person and the tweets, and then no telling what other data is out there, but like I could spend my time looking back on this person's tweets and see what they tweet about. Mm -hmm. Who they like, who they follow, and then I can craft some sort of email message specific to that person if I if I want to get targeted, right? Yeah. And so if you have these email address, and I'm sure a lot of people sign up with their company emails, right? I mean, people cross pollinate all the time. Uh, there could be some kind of nuggets of data in there that people could start to go after, um, mm -hmm. high profile people, right? So you just kind of have to. I think what uh. Have I been pwned as a as a service that kind of tracks that? I think they've gone paid now, but those type of services are really interesting just to see if you're exposed, right? And that exposure should kind of heighten your awareness of what you should and should not click. So yeah, and it's just funny because the longer you hold one of those like email addresses and things, the more likelihood you'll be in one of those you just forgot that you used your email somewhere kind of thing, right? Yeah. So that's where the password reuse thing it becomes a problem. So it's always good yeah, to have unique absolutely. passwords. Yeah. All right, so the last one, funny. So yeah, the last one uh, I got from the Hacker News and it was, you know, the Russia-based ransom bogs ransomware targeting several Ukrainian organizations. So, you know, not, not to like completely harp on that we have this thing going on in the world, but obviously they're, you know, Ukraine is gonna be a, a constant target of attacks and they've been hit you know, continuously with wipers and ransomware. And the, the latest one is they call it the ransom bogs. Um, and the interesting thing here is, is not so much, they, they, I mean, it's a .NET 
ransomware. That's what it was kind of written in. But it was more how it was deployed and how they did kind of the attribution. I thought that was the most interesting piece. So it was deployed with PowerShell. Um, and ESET's the one that kind of did some of the research on this. But they were looking at some the commonalities in the, they, I think the PowerShell deployment tool, whatever you want to call it, was called PowerGap. And they're looking at similar code structures between the two. And I know some people are like, oh, well, how do you, how can you tell, you know, just because someone reuses some of the code that it's like the same actor kind of thing. And you got to look for things in code that are more attributed to people's personalities. And, and what I mean by that is, in this case, they were saying that it's very closely related to Sandworm, which is kind of the Russian GRU. They were responsible. And and PowerGap was using in Destroyer 2 earlier in April in Ukraine. It was the malware they were trying to push to kind of shut down the grid again, um, but was kind of foiled. And an example of like that personality and code is, for instance, one of the tags, like one, same variable names. You know, you can name variables whatever you want when you're a programmer. And if you make a unique variable, but yet it shows up in code in multiple, you know, iterations of code, it, it kind of points to the same programmer in a way because it's just we're creatures of habit. That's how we like to think and remember things. It makes it easier on the programmer to say, hey, I use this variable for these things. That's why it's named this, whatever. Um, right. But the other thing, there's always options in code. Um, and it's, you know, especially PowerShell and, and things that are kind of like that terminal specific is you can kind of control what does the output look like, right, if you're interacting with it. And in this case, there was a lot of where you had the similar variables and the things kind of stored in variables, but then you also had the tags at the end of what, what's being displayed as, you know, foreground color red. Like, and, you know, in the same places. And so that's something where it's like, what well, you know, yes, someone else can pick red, but when you start getting enough of these kind of pushed together, you kind of build that programmer's personality. And yeah, it doesn't mean someone couldn't just steal the code that someone else wrote. Sure. Um, but that means that it's still a common code base. And if you can attribute and you already have that attributed to something that's say sophisticated or nation state driven, that makes it much easier to tie. Cause a lot of people don't have access to nation state, you know, computed code or, you know, compiled code. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's something that I think is always interesting to pay attention to. You know, if you get your hands on, um, there's two things to look at, right. When you look at your hands on any kind of code that you can kind of glance at one, like what is it doing? You know, if you can kind of figure that out, but two, is look for those other interesting artifacts. Like, you know, if you can create a personality around that um, code-based, uh, sometimes, especially if you see your company organization getting hit over and over by attacks, it'd be nice to know, is it the same or different attackers? And that's one where, where you might start to be able to tell that story and it creates some value because then you can see how they change and adapt to your environment, so. Yeah, that's a really good point. And yeah, it is. I guess it's not a novel way to do attribution, but you know, looking at the code mm -hmm. example they have in the article, you know, definitely the variable naming, the spacing um, on how you're spacing yeah. up the variables, the definitions, how you're defining the the types, if it's an integer, num, a byte, um, definition creation as well. Because to your point, there's a thousand different ways to do a function, right? But if right. you're writing the same function every time, that's interesting. Right, uh, or excuse me, reusing the same function every time to do a specific task. So I think if you yeah, can- so something, go ahead. No, sorry, the one of the things that I thought of that I didn't include was, you know, people always will say you can copy and paste. Well, something to be aware of in a copy and paste job is a lot of times you see the same code multiple times, it's unnecessary. Mm -hmm. um, 
So like if I'm going to steal from something and make it work, you'll start seeing where I'm stealing from the same source. And now I have the same block of code here and here and here. And, and you know, a good coder doesn't write the same code block, you know, five or six times. Right. So that's a good example where someone's just really moving code and not creating themselves. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No. And then um, potentially, you know, how it's compiled and formatted uh, based on um, like there's a term bomb but there's there's um some some there's ways to do it where it's like ge geographically consistent across the encoding uh -huh. so like latin one or you know you're going to change the encoding mechanism on the back end um, to actually compile a code or um, to have it readable across you know different programming types or you know execution uh, framework so there's a lot that you can dig into the actual code base uh, but it is interesting to start to build those profiles um, from an attribution mm -hmm. perspective. So that, that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, no, I think that uh, that rounds out this week. Um, I will not be here next week. We'll have a, a guest host. So um, we'll have to see you the week after. Um, but Scott, uh, again, great talking with you. Um, yeah, I just want to thank everyone for joining our out of the woods threat hunting podcast and obviously we're looking forward to syncing back with you all next week so with that that kind of closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of november 28 2022 thanks for listening to the out of the woods podcast be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode for more information or to connect with cyborg security check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.